The Gucci Girl, Prada Professional, Coach Queen, or Target Trendsetter. No matter how you describe her, she's the most powerful consumer in the country. Join marketing to women expert Maria Ritan, principal at Top Sale Strategies, as she chats with those in the know so that your business can grow only on her strings. Good afternoon and welcome to Purse Strings. I'm Maria Retan. Thanks so much for joining me today. You can catch Purse Strings every Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Each and every week, you'll learn how you and your company can corner the market on the most powerful consumer in the country. The 51% of us who control more than 80% of all this spending. The woman. Well, first up, Steve Walensky's article in Forbes this past week on Samsung. I don't know if you saw this, but the face of retail is changing dramatically thanks to Samsung, which launched its very first retail experience where you can't buy anything. Can't buy a thing. You can walk in and have an experience in a retail shop, but you actually can't buy anything. They're calling it Samsung 837. It's a massive space in New York City's meatpacking district. And according to the powers that be there at Samsung, they're calling it a cultural destination and a digital playground. Uh, They describe it as a way to express its brand through events and product discovery opportunities. Uh, It's essentially a flagship without the retail, and it will, I believe, set the tone for additional me tours that will will be popping up. Samsung's calling it the Unstore. I thought that was pretty interesting. It's three floors, so you can imagine it's pretty huge there. Uh, they have a one-of-a-kind digital screen, an auditorium seating for performances and special events, a gallery for curated content experiences, and a broadcast studio. The standout feature is described as the social galaxy. So what you do, it's this, apparently this huge tunnel that you walk through, has mirrors and screens around it. Before you enter, you you actually put in your Instagram handle. So as you walk through it, all your Instagram descriptions, photos, and hashtags are projected across the screen. So it's highly personal, as you can imagine, which is, I think, part of what makes it so darn cool. So we'll see how much traffic Samsung 837 is able to attract and if maybe Sony will debut something in the near future. Really fascinating. Our first profile today is the Prada Professional, a woman committed to her career but trying to achieve some balance in her life. She's age 36, college grad, married, employed full-time. 60% of them have kids in the home. Personal income of 75K, household income of 150K or above. Likes to keep up with the latest fashion. Important to really focus on relationships. She's very confident in who she is. She likes to go out and purchase quality things. Believes that it's worth purchasing quality things, but she is willing to shop around at different stores to try to get the best price. Spends a lot of time at work, but really spends the rest of her time at home with her family, um, also pursuing her desires around the arts and and international travel. So what is she buying, or where is she buying, I should say? Well, she's buying Calvin Klein, Armani, she's at Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom, Target, Crate & Barrel, she's driving a BMW and Audi, for example. If you're a marketer, you can connect with her through magazines and TV. She's reading Real Simple, Harper's Bazaar in style shape, Vanity Fair, just to name a few. She's watching E! Food Network, TLC, TBS as well. My guest today is focused on gender diversity as part of his work there at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Marcus 
Nolan is an executive VP and director of studies at PIIE. He co-wrote a working paper called Is Gender Diversity Profitable? Evidence from a Global Study. He co-authored it with Tyler Morin and Barbara Kochwar, both of them working in research at PIIE. If you haven't heard of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, well, it's a private, nonprofit, nonpartisan research institution devoted to the rigorous and intellectually open study of international economic policy. It's recognized for taking on emerging issues and presenting practical responses. Their audiences include government officials and legislators, businesses and labor leaders, management and staff of international organizations, university-based scholars, students, and more. I'm thrilled to have Marcus on the show today uh, to reveal the findings of this massive, massive study. I haven't seen anything like it before. I think it's quite unique. I think the findings will be extremely eye-opening. So I do hope you'll stick around when Purse Strings returns in just a moment. Purse Strings will be right back after a word from our advertisers. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? Studies show that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average. The web marketing experts at WMETraining.com can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean, converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the web marketing experts at WMETraining.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Conversion Conference, the can't-miss CRO event of 2016. Join over 750 people from dozens of countries gathering in Las Vegas, May 18th and 19th, for the biggest industry-wide conversion event ever. Four parallel tracks of top content will allow you to personalize the exact topics that you want to focus on. Interact with expert speakers at informal networking events and birds of a feather lunch table topics. Meet dozens of leading CRO companies face-to-face in the expo hall. Get hands-on with pre-conference workshops and master classes. Join us for fun activities such as zip lining and Tim Ash's after party in the presidential suite. Oh yeah, did we mention that it's in Vegas, baby? May 18th and 19th, Conversion Conference last year sold out fast and it's expected to sell out again. So don't miss it. Go to conversionconference.com for details right now. Purse Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. 
Welcome back to Purse Strings. My guest today is Marcus Nolan, Executive Vice President and Director of Studies at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a non-resident senior fellow at the East-West Center. He co-wrote the working paper for PIIE called Is Gender Diversity Profitable? Evidence from a Global Study. He did this with co-authors Tyler Moran and Barbara Kochwar. Um, she's a research fellow at the Peterson Institute of international economics and Tyler is a research analyst there. The Peterson Institute for International Economics is a private nonprofit nonpartisan research institution devoted to rigorous and intellectually open study of international economic policy, widely recognized for anticipating emerging issues and its readiness to present practical responses. So taking on gender diversity and and this gap is a is a big one, I would imagine, for PIIE, and I'm really thrilled to have Marcus on the show today. Welcome. My pleasure to be here. So, I did kind of an extended introduction about the Peterson Institute for International Economics, but do, by all means, in your own words, talk a little bit more about PIIE and your role there. Well, as you said, we are a private, uh, nonprofit, public policy think tank devoted to the study of international economics a little bit more than 30 years old. We are regarded as nonpartisan and we're, we're centrist. We're not, we're not a particularly ideological organization. And we are fairly unique among American think tanks in that if one looks at the rate of scholarly citations produced by our staff and you look at the rate of popular press citations, we're on the 45-degree line. So we, um, we try to be uh, fair, impartial, neutral, We do rigorous work, but we also try to communicate that rigorous work to the general public. Mm -hmm. Well, and thank you for your great work. You know, your white paper is Gender Diversity Profitable Evidence from a Global Survey certainly caught my attention. Regular listeners of Purse Strings know that we tackle gender diversity issues quite often on this show. And we specifically support the argument that greater diversity within companies, especially at top levels, does pay off with an increased bottom line. We've called out previous research on this show, some of which you and your own paper call out as well. But the research that I think is regularly mentioned, at least in public sectors, is around having more than two women on boards and and other things that just kind of show that the more women that you have, especially at different levels, the more profitable you will be. So clearly, I was intrigued. Talk a little bit about why you and your co-authors decided to tackle this particular topic. Well, there's sort of two reasons. One is that we had been doing some work on gender. We had done a number of studies and papers that related a lot to gender and sports. Um, the idea that uh, participation in sports for girls uh, led to better life outcomes, in, you know, things like staying in school longer, not getting pregnant and in inauspicious circumstances, uh, better performance in the labor market uh, after leaving school and so on. One of the interesting things we found is that that message is pretty well known in the United States, but what we found was you could document those effects for a very wide range of countries and societies all around the world, that the same basic principle uh, seemed to hold. 
We also did some work on uh, the role of women in leadership in the sports field, and we found it was very much a, a pipeline sort of argument. If you had a lot of girls playing sports at the junior high school, high school level, you tended to have more young women in sports at college level, more female coaches, more female athletic administrators, and eventually you end up with women on the executive committee of the International Olympic Committee. And uh, some of our colleagues and some of our uh, supporters kind of prodded us and said, well, all the stuff you're doing on sports is very interesting, but why don't you take on uh, more central corporate concerns? And so we shifted the focus of the research. My co-author, Tyler Moran, uh, came up with a data source which allowed us to do something that other studies had not done. Most of the other studies on this topic that you alluded to in your comment are usually done on a single country, often the United States, occasionally mm -hmm. in Western Europe. Our study is unique in that we look at uh, this data for 91 countries all around the world, different continents, different levels of income. And so our study is really unique in that we're taking this analysis beyond the normal United States, Western Europe context to a much broader array of, of countries. And we have a very large data set. We have nearly 22,000 firms that we're examining. And so I think that's what really has set our work apart from the previous scholarship in this area. I know. When I saw 22,000 firms around the globe, 91 countries in all, I have to admit, I kind of did a double take. I thought, wow, that's, that's huge. That's really huge. I mean, you don't need that large of a sample to be statistically, uh, you know, correct, but you could have gone with a smaller pool. Why did you decide to go with such a large number, and how did you identify the companies that you ended up including? Well, the the data comes from Reuters, and we simply took the entire universe mm -hmm. of publicly traded firms in the Reuters data set. Um, and the reason we went, you know, 22,000 sounds like a big number, and it, it is. But if you're looking at 91 countries, it's not that big a number. Um, and that was important to us, because one of the things that comes out in our research is there's a tremendous amount of variation in these various indicators we looked at, the, the number of women on boards, the number of female executives, the ubiquity of female CEOs. There's tremendous amount of variation across countries. And so there was really something to be said for taking as wide a lens as possible and involving as many different countries and as many different societies, various cultural backgrounds, and various levels of economic development as possible. That's useful. I think that's a useful thing to do from a general scholarly standpoint, as well as there's some, some advantages from, in terms of statistical analysis mm -hmm. for going that broad. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly impressive, and I would imagine there were, I mean, as I know, because I've read, I've read the paper, there were some pretty big takeaways from the survey. What were some of the ones that come most immediately to mind for you? As I mentioned in my comment about our earlier research on sports, is that we really found a pipeline effect, that if you generate a large pool of qualified candidates, some people will fall out of that pool for all kinds of idiosyncratic and personal reasons. But if, if the pool is large enough, you will have survivors that make it to the next round of competition, so to speak. And we seem to be finding a similar sort of effect in the corporate world. For example, we find that having a female CEO 
does not appear to matter in terms of corporate profitability. Female CEOs are not systematically better or systematically worse than their male counterparts. Marcus, I'm There's, bummed out by that. I want you to know that really, <laughs> that really makes me mad. <laughs> I was hoping well, you were going to tell me, but but they bring so much more to the equation, Maria. But apparently, not a big impact on performance. Well, I well well let, let me finish because I suspect <laughs> that your average CEO, your average CEO, probably does not have a decisive impact on his or her firm's profitability. There may be some particularly unique or gifted people. There may be Steve Jobs out there in the world or Oprah's out there in the world whose personality and personal imprint on their firms is really decisive. Mm -hmm. But your average CEO probably is the head of a large effective organization for a successful CEO is going to be the head of a large successful organization that's going to have capable, successful people at all layers. And frankly, who's in that very top spot probably is not decisive. And so it wasn't that surprising to me that, that having a female CEO is not systematically, uh, does not systematically affect uh, these outcomes. Mm-hmm. There is more evidence that having women on the board matters, and there's even more evidence that having women in C-level positions, the, the chief information officer, the chief financial officer, and so on, there is more evidence that having women in that next tier of corporate management uh, has an impact on profitability. And the data that we have do not allow me to test this proposition, but it is my strong uh, supposition that if I had the data to drill down further in the corporate structure, so we started looking at division chiefs and so on, you would get a similar result, that the more women in general in upper reaches of management contribute positively to the firm, and, and it is probably more important at these kind of lower levels of, of that upper management structure than having somebody at the very top, because by the time you get to the very top, if you have a functional firm, whoever's at the top will probably be basically successful, and if you've got a dysfunctional firm, <laughs> who's ever at the top may not be successful. Right. It's funny how those things go together. Your data, does it talk about why? Why the impact of women in those roles at those levels within these organizations? Do you know the why? We have, we have some implicit evidence on the why. There are basically, in the academic literature, there are a variety of theories about why having women on boards or why having women in upper management might make a difference to firm performance. One of those theories is that women's presence increases functional diversity in the corporate leadership. So if you think of the example of women on boards, women getting on boards will tend to bring with them a different skill set, and it may enhance the functioning of the board and improve the board's monitoring of management because you have a team that has a more diverse skill set and is better able to monitor management performance. You also have a similar sort of argument with respect to women at high levels of management. And let me just tell you an anecdotal story. Um, I have a family relation who is who's a very, very sharp woman from Ghana, West Africa. And she went to work for a large European multinational, which is a producer of dairy products and, and baby products and so on. 
and she actually went to work for them through the IT stream. But somebody caught on very quickly that this was a very sharp, capable woman, and they basically fast-tracked her for management and started rotating her through various departments in the company. And at one point, she was appointed the head of marketing for us in East Africa, based in Johannesburg. And at the time of her appointment as the head of marketing for a firm whose end users are probably, end purchasers are probably 90% female, she was the first female and certainly the first African female to ever hold that position. And one would think that maybe an African female would know something about, you know, have some insight into marketing products to African women that a European male might not. Mm-hmm. So there is just that kind of diversity as well. Mm-hmm. The second Love that argument. Example. The second argument is an argument about discrimination. And I tell the story of my daughter. I took her to the school fair this year. We were walking across the school grounds, and she found a $20 bill on the ground. And we checked around, and, and nobody claimed it. So I said, okay, well, it's yours. And then about an hour later, we were walking across a different part of the school grounds, and she found another $20 bill lying on the ground. Now, mm. most of us don't find $20 bills lying on the <laughs> ground, much less two of them in the same afternoon. But I would make that the analogy to firms that discriminate. If, if one believes that the distribution of talent and ability is roughly the population, and you have one firm that is, for whatever reason, ignoring or excluding half the talent pool, their peers who do not discriminate are in the position of basically picking $20 bills up off the ground because the other, the other firm is ignoring them. And so we find that firms that discriminate will not perform as well because they're simply allowing talent to migrate quite naturally to firms that don't discriminate. And in our study, we found that one of the explanators of why women get to the top in various countries is the absence of discrimination against female executives. We, we have uh, public opinion survey data that's quite broad. And again, there's quite a lot of variation in the data. Some cultures are more comfortable with female executives than others. And not surprisingly, the uh, cultures that are more tolerant tend to have more women rise to the top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then there's what's interesting is for those companies that don't naturally see women rising to the top, there's some com- countries that are actually mandating numbers of women in certain roles. Um, in your paper, you know that a McKinsey Global Institute estimation that parity could increase the global output by more than 25%, which was a mind-boggling number to me. We know that there's a variety of countries across the globe that have started to mandate numbers of women on corporate boards specifically, apparently believing, of course, that it would impact their business to the positive. We know other countries are offering public funds to offset the cost of companies providing flex schedules and child care, and yet here in the United States, we are not there on any of those mandates or, in a large part, a lot of the the public funds to companies. What's your thought on why the U.S. is lagging in this area, and do you even believe it's a bad thing, or do you feel like maybe it's, it's neutral? I'm just curious on your, your thoughts on this topic. Let me step back for a moment in answering your question. If we, if we just look at the raw data, in our sample, globally, 
about 11% of board members in these publicly traded firms are women. Female CEOs make up about 5%. And if we look at that broader C-suite, uh, you know, chief financial officers, chief information officers, and so on, it's about 14%. So women in these positions in general around the world are scarce. Those are, those are not very high numbers, you know, 11%, 5%, 14%. The United States is about at the global average. Uh, for boards, in our data, it's 12% versus the global average of 11. CEOs is 5%, just at the global average. Uh, C-suite is 16%, a little bit above the global average of 14. So we're not anything special. Uh, we're about at the global average. And, again, that's an average of 91 countries which includes you know, a, a quite wide range of countries around the world. When we examine that data, we find that, in fact, women in corporate leadership does, in fact, contribute positively to firm performance. We find that if you went from zero women in leadership positions to 30%, that would be associated with, uh, among profitable firms, an increase of profit of about uh, one percentage point or about 15%. And that's not a small number. So, so there, there seems to be real gains in increasing the amount of women in corporate leadership. And when we look at what are the correlates with getting women to the top, there are a variety of them. One of them is personal preparation. It has to do with, with educational streams, how girls score relative to boys on math assessment tests, what types of majors do young women take when they go to university, how many go to university, and so on. As I mentioned, social attitudes and legal frameworks matter as well. I mean, a lot of countries, there's more discrimination against women than there is in the United States, and there may not be the legal machinery for non-discrimination in employment laws. And the final tranche of explanations we have for why women do or do not get to the top has to do with public policy. You mentioned mandates or quotas on women's mm -hmm. participation in boards. Another one that we found, and it goes to the second aspect that you mentioned, is we found, interestingly enough, one of the key correlates is actually the provision of paternity leave. And I want to be very clear about this. I believe that the provision, and importantly, use of paternity leave indeed contributes to strengthening women's career advancement. One of the things I, well, the single thing that I have received most positive feedback for from my colleagues was I man as, as the executive vice president here at Peterson, I managed to get us paternity leave. Way to go. It was too late for me, but it has helped some of my uh, male colleagues, and I've had both men and women here, you know, in hallway conversations, you thank me for getting that done. Now, I don't want to overplay that because um, it goes to a, st a statistical issue. We're a bit like the drunks looking for the car keys under the lamppost because that's where the light is. We can count paternity leave. I can tell you how much paternity leave is mandated in various countries. That is probably, in a statistical sense, acting as a proxy for a broader range of public policy interventions, including public support for high-quality daycare and so on. So I don't want to say it's only paternity leave. I suspect paternity leave is acting as, a, as I said, a proxy for a broader set 
of interventions. And as you, as you mentioned in your question, the United States lags very far behind mm. on this part. We're okay. It might be a surprise to you and your listeners, but relative to the world, we're not so bad on discrimination, and we have, a, we have some legal machinery uh, to address that. It's probably inadequate, but relative to the world, we don't look too bad on that. We don't look too bad on education of women. Uh, we could do a lot better. And as father of daughter, I am concerned about this. But where we really fall short relative to other countries, especially other countries at our level of income, is in public policy. Mm. Uh, the lack of not just support for women, but support for families more broadly. Mm. And I think that better and more effective and more generous support for families, whether that be maternity leave, paternity leave, either direct or provisions in the tax code to support high-quality child care, all of those things uh, would go to support women in their careers. Because one of the things we find that even for women, for example, who have MBAs, right now in the United States, we graduate more women with MBAs than men. Mm-hmm. And initially, in terms of their first jobs, they look pretty much the same. But if you go back 10 years after they've started their careers, they've diverged. Mm-hmm. And the basic single most important reason is interruption of women's careers associated with childbirth and child rearing, especially the first child. Mm-hmm. And so if you can ease that period of being out of the labor force, if you can ease reentry with better paternity leave and better other forms of support, you are likely to have less disruption of young women's careers and hence higher numbers of young women making it to the top. Mm-hmm. Love it. Great. I love how you've kind of pinpointed that as an issue that maybe we can all get around. And I want to talk about that when we come back from a quick break. So everyone stick around more from Marcus Nolan when we return. Her strings will be right back after a word from our advertisers. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. 
Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com. That's S-P-Y-F-U.com. And start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Ritan. I've been speaking today with Marcus Nolan, Executive Vice President and Director of Studies at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's the co-author of a working paper from PIIE called, Is Gender Diversity Profitable? Evidence from a Global Study. And we've been talking about... The results of that study, all of it, very, very fascinating. And right before the break, um, Marcus was able to to really pinpoint the need for advancement in public policy when it comes to the United States and where we're really lagging behind. Support for families, easing entry uh, back into the workplace after that first child and trying to lessen that disruption that so many women face when they bow out for a short period of time to have that child. Real quickly, what did you discover about the correlation of women in certain sectors and their ability to rise into executive roles? Because depending on where women may be focused, whether it be engineering or some other sector, there may not be as, as big an impact when it comes to gender diversity. Well, there is variation across sectors. Sectors, and, and again, let me start out by saying that we're talking about a situation where the global average of female board members is 11%. Mm-hmm. The global average of female CEOs is 5%, and the global average of females in the C-suite is 14%, and the United States is not much off of the global average. So we're starting, when I say relatively good, that's relative to a really <laughs> low base. Right. Okay. So the sectors that look relatively good in terms of diversity, and none of these, for example, have executives more than 20%. Right. I mean, we're still under 20%, even in the good sector, so to speak. Would be things like utilities, uh, financial sector, healthcare, telecoms, the ones that look not very diverse. And so we're talking basically at or below the global average would be industrials, energy, technology, uh, which of course is a big issue, and basic materials, which includes things like mining sector. So you've got a certain amount of variation across sectors. Again, utilities, financial, healthcare, telecom being relatively strong. And then, you know, things like energy mining, industrial, and, and tech being relatively low. These, these variations across sectors, though, are, are just dwarfed by the variations across countries. If you look, for example, at board membership. In our sample, it ranges from a high of 40% in Norway, where there is a quota that says it's got to be 40%, mm-hmm. uh, down to Japan at 2%. If you look at the number of CEO, female CEOs in Slovenia, uh, one of the parts of the former uh, Yugoslavia, it's 16%. But we've got countries in the sample where, where the number is zero. And if you look at the, the broader C-suite, Bulgaria, another uh, for you know an Eastern European country, uh, 37 percent. 
So there's tremendous variation across countries, and there's some variation across sector as well. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And to your point, we're still talking about very low levels across the board. We're not talking about huge numbers here. At the end of the day, this was a significant study at the top, talked about the numbers involved in uh, 22,000 firms across the globe, 91 countries. What do you think the impact of your findings will be, or what do you hope when it comes to making the case for greater gender diversity in, in corporate America? Let's talk about the U.S. Okay, so basically, if you, if you think about those three drivers that I talked about, one is essentially personal preparation, the educational system, and, and one can broadly support you know, various changes and in, in reforms in education that will generate better educational outcomes for girls. That's one thing. And then we have the issue of discrimination, and we can go further on strengthening our anti-discrimination laws. And then there are the issues of basically support for families and the possibility of quotas and other mechanisms. So one thing that, that we could do in the United States is to follow the lead of Norway and some other European countries and actually enact our quotas for board membership. I think that, given the political culture of the United States, I think that's probably unlikely. And in some ways, I I personally have ambivalent feelings about going to a a quota. I think that you may need to break some eggs to make the omelet, and one can always make the quota time, uh, uh, you know, have a sunset clause like the Netherlands did, so the quota system was in place for a period of years but then phased out. But honestly, in the United States, I don't see that happening. And in some ways, it's a a cheap gesture because you can go ahead and have a quota, but then if you neglect these more basic underlying drivers, you're not really addressing the underlying problem. You're treating the symptom rather than the problem. Mm -hmm. At the level of the individual firm, I think, interestingly enough, I think that there is a process lesson we might be able to take from, of all places, the National Football League. (laughs) Um, Yeah, not something you probably talk a lot about on first strings. Right. Um, The NFL has something called the Rooney Rule. It's named for uh, the family that owns the Pittsburgh Steelers franchise. And the Rooney Rule started out being, if a head coaching position for an NFL franchise opened up, the franchise had to interview at least one minority, and in this case we're talking racial minorities, one minority candidate for that position. And a couple things happened. First of all, there were cases where very good, young, assistant, black assistant coaches who probably would not have gotten the interview uh, got the interview through the Rooney Rule and indeed became head coaches. And Mike Tomlin, the current coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, is probably the best example. He was an assistant coach with the Seattle franchise. He got an interview with the Steelers. They were really impressed. They hired this guy, and he's been a very successful coach. There have been others who weren't hired, but at least by going through the interviewing process, they got themselves on the radar. And so when another position opened up, you know, they were in the discussion as potential candidates. 
and they went through the interviewing process. So when that other position came up, they had had the experience of interviewing for a head coaching position. They kind of knew what was involved. It wasn't their first trip to the rodeo, and they could be a more successful candidate in the, in the interview. The NFL has since broadened the Rooney Rule now not only to involve uh, head, coaches, head coaches, but general managers as well. Mm. Love so it. One of, the, one of the things the firms could do is basically have an internal Rooney Rule that if the CIO position opens up or if the CFO uh, position opens up or if, you know, the division, you know, the, you know, the head of marketing for Latin America position opens up, you have to interview a woman. You don't have to hire her, you know, for that job. But you have to interview her. And it is, it is a process reform that doesn't mandate that you have to hire this person but if it is implemented in even a semi-sincere way, it will have the effects, I think, that we've been able to observe in the NFL, that it actually has increased the number of minority hires. Because, again, you get capable people who just weren't in the old boys network uh, on the radar, and you get them used to being interviewed, and you get them part of the discussion. And, you know, some of them get hired like Mike Tomlin, and they're very successful. Some of them may get hired, and they're not so successful. And, you know, they get fired uh, like anybody else. But uh, they become, it integrates them into the process. And so I would say, you know, if I'm a firm, I'm not only going to not discriminate, I'm actually going to do a Rooney Rule type, type operation to try to uh, proactively encourage diversity in my management ranks, because ultimately it is going to be beneficial to my bottom line. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think that's great. Do you typically repeat surveys that you've done before or studies that you've done before? So do you have a plan, say in five years or whatever, to go back and do a similar uh, study and see if we've moved the needle in any way? Well, that's a fantastic question. I'm, I'm very happy about the answer I can give you. From a statistical standpoint, our study has some great strengths. We have enormous breadth. I mean, we're looking at 91 countries. We've got 22,000 firms. But we have the weakness that this is a single snapshot in time. It's data for 2014, and that's all. Mm-hmm. And so, for, examine, for, for instance, examining the impact of introducing a quota system for women on boards uh, that's hard to do when you're only looking at a single point in time. So, you know, get down to the grubby details of these things. It costs money to buy the Reuters data. And, you know, you know uh, Tyler and Barbara and I have to get paid salaries. And so it takes money. And so what my strategy was in producing this paper was essentially a down payment, that if we could produce a paper that was interesting, then we could go back to corporate supporters and the sort of usual suspect philanthropic foundations that support our institution and ask for more money to put together what a statistician would call a proper panel survey where we're looking at the same country companies year after year after year. Mm. And I can tell you, I can report to you, we've been successful. Yes. Uh, what, what <laughs> That's we're, great. So what we're doing at this very moment is extending our study backwards in time and what we're going to be able to do is start taking cuts at this data. We haven't decided. Probably every year is overdoing it because there's just not going to be enough change year to year. But we'll probably do it every other year. We probably won't wait for every five years. We'll probably do it every other year. 
and that will allow us both to extend our data. It'll also allow us to, you know, for example, construct an index of female advancement in, in corporate executive positions. We can organize some sort of program around it every year, the release of the, you know, the latest value of our index, which we hope, you know, shows monotonic rise over time. So, yes, I mean, this paper that, that you read was well enough received that, in fact, I have been able to lever it into some support for uh, a broader, more comprehensive examination, which we're, we're undertaking right now. Congratulations. Well done. I'm, I'm thrilled for you, Tyler and Barbara. And it was a very interesting paper, as you hoped that it would be. And clearly others believe that it was too. And I'm excited in another year or so to have you back on and see maybe what additional data, uh, additional insights you, you three have uncovered. So congratulations. And I do recommend everyone go to PIIE.com to learn more about the Peterson Institute for International Economics and the great work, Marcus, that you and your team do there. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure to speak with you. So happy to have you on. And thanks to my producer, George, as well. And join me right here next week for another edition of Purse Strings, 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Until then, make it a great one. The opinions expressed on this Cranberry Radio program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry Media. Any redistribution of this content without proper consent is prohibited. 